Hi, it's Arjun with a video this week addressing the question of, is oil a sunset industry? And this is going to be part one of at least two. I'm going to focus on the question of demand. And so you start with, what do people mean by sunset industry? Usually it means demand for your product is going away, profitability is probably eroding. And those types of questions have started to arise with the oil industry. And I think the first thing that arose, I'm going to go through in this video, is this idea that we're going to be having peak oil demand sometime soon. It started with the COVID concerns. And then as the world really ramped up uh, being concerned about net zero scenarios, people have started to wonder, was 2019 the peak of oil demand? And if it's not 2019, would it be somewhere in the 2020s? And that has really dominated a lot of the discussion. And you don't have to be an oil analyst or barrel counter to have had these concerns. I think the general investment community, companies out there, they've wondered, are the best days of the oil industry behind it, at least from a demand perspective, as EVs ramp up and as Paris Line commitments, et cetera, start kicking in. I think the other big part, and this will be part two, I'll probably do it after earnings season so we can get a, another round of quarterly profitability under the books is this question of, hey, last decade, profitability was really poor. If there is uncertainty about the demand outlook, if there's all these climate concerns and net zero scenarios and so forth, and maybe we have this legacy of poor profitability from the 2010s, maybe I don't even need to bother. Maybe I'm not an ideologue about climate scenarios or even about where oil demand is going, but just the inherent profitability of this sector, uh, people have wondered. And you know, I've already spent a lot of time talking about how I expect profitability to be better. It's already improved quite a bit. But I think there is still uncertainty and doubt as to whether 2022 after Russia, Ukraine was kind of a one-time blip up in profitability. And again, I am more optimistic, but we're going to save that for another video. The other big aspect of all of this, this question of is oil a sunset industry comes from this very European and maybe US left of center viewpoint of energy transition, which I think means to most people, we are transitioning from something, presumably fossil fuels, into something else, which is presumably renewables and electric vehicles and so forth, and that we're going to somehow do this on such a short time frame that at this moment right here in 2023, oil industry is a sunset industry. And that I think is the public narrative. I'm going to push back hard on all aspects of that. Uh, is oil a sunset industry? Uh, not today. I don't think it is in the 2020s. I think you could debate the 2030s, but I'll, I'll, I'll probably take the over on that. Um, and I don't know what decade we're going to stop using as much oil, uh, but I think it's pretty far to the right when you think about really the energy needs of the rest of the world. And this has really been a core theme of mine here um, in, you know, in, in the last few months of 2023. This energy transition needs to transition to one that really puts at its center rest of world energy needs. And without putting that first and foremost, you're never going to solve all of our issues. How do you meet the needs of the other seven to soon to be 9 billion people on earth? Use a fraction of the energy that the lucky 1 billion of us does. You're going to have to address those needs. Now, you'd like to do it in an affordable way, in a geopolitically secure way, and with as helpful and as minimal of an environmental and climate impact as you could have. But make no mistake, you have to provide energy availability to for all. And with that, and if you don't do so, you will never get to these other considerations. It all is going to have to go together. This energy transition needs to transition. And I think as we 
put the rest of the world's energy needs first and foremost, they're going to be using a whole bunch of oil and natural gas, and by the way, probably a lot of coal. And how do you mitigate the environmental negative aspects of that? Um, how do you take the benefits of what those products provide? How do you do it in an affordable, geopolitical, secure way? Those are all the challenges we're trying to solve. But we're trying to solve that challenge, providing the energy needs for the rest of the world, hopefully with as small of an environmental and climate footprint as we can have. So let me get to really the heart of this week's video, which is this question on the outlook for oil demand. And really, we are on track to obliterate this sort of net zero ideology. And it's really the negative aspects, the ideological aspects of net zero that we push back on. Do we want to decarbonize? I'm, I'm always said I have no issues with decarbonization as some long-term objective. What I do object to is taking people's energy away or saying you're going to take them away before the new stuff's ready for prime time. And so let me, you know, I've spent time on this IEA net zero by 2050 report. This came out in May of 2021. And in fairness, it was pitched as a scenario. And, and it is a scenario. The question is, or the point is, it's a wholly unrealistic scenario, and it was never on track to occur. And it has been the weaponization of the scenario by some. And I think it's a willful weaponization. I don't think it's a surprise it's been weaponized. Where that blue line at the bottom of the slide, no new oil and natural gas fields are required, but beyond those already approved for development, consistent with this net zero scenario, which admittedly had a whole bunch of other assumptions. That has been weaponized to say, don't invest in new oil and gas fields. This is a sunset industry. By the words of the weaponizers, it needs to go away. It is now 2023, two years after this report has been published. And you can see this red X, hopefully you can see it on the screen, that I hand drew in. This comes from the IEA's recent, it used to be the medium-term oil market report. It has some different name now, but they have projections out to 2028. And their 2028 projection now calls for 105 million barrels a day. 2019 oil demand pre-COVID was 100. This report, this IEA net zero report said that was the peak. And by 2030, we'd only need to be using 75 million barrels. That was never, ever on track to happen. It's a wholly unrealistic scenario to the point where why publish it? Why publish it unless you're purposely trying to weaponize something? Um, it's only two years later. And yes, different groups produced the medium-term report versus this net zero report. The net zero report, again, I've said it many times now, is a scenario. It's not a forecast. It was never on track to happen. We're blowing through the numbers here in 2023, 2024. We did not peak in 2019. We're not on track to peak in the mid-2020s. And keep in mind, this is all happening at a time where China has had a pretty rocky reopening. Europe, <laughs> Europe is Europe, not exactly booming. And here in the US, the debate has been hard landing or soft landing. There's been no debate of economic boom or bubble. It's the opposite. A lot of Fed interest rate increases, are we gonna have a hard landing or a soft landing? So at a time of generally choppy and uncertain GDP in your three major oil consuming regions, China, Europe, US, we are obliterating these IEA net zero 2050 advocacy outlooks. And the issue is, and why I get so passionate about this is, who gets hurt by this? It, it is not the lucky people like myself who are retired Goldman partners and now work at Veritin. Um, it is the least fortunate. Where is the economic and social justice in these kind of scenarios? Then what do they do? They starve the world of oil and gas investment, 
they create expectations that this is a sunset industry and they're not accurate and they were never on track to be accurate. You can always debate the longer term view beyond 2030, put oil demand level offshore. I don't think it will, but it could. Could you have some substitution and mile per gallon improvements that finally kick in? Yes, you can. Could different countries choose to develop differently? Absolutely. Could we have new technologies? Yes. But between now and 2030, this peaking notion has never been on track to occur. Uh, and we are blowing through it at a time of general economic uncertainty. What happens? What happens when we start having economic growth, uh, more robust economic growth going forward, not just in the US or China, but in other parts of the world? And so I know I've produced this before, um, this idea that there are 1 billion of us that live in the United States, Canada, Europe, Western Europe, Japan, and, and I probably need to include Australia and New Zealand in there. And we use about 15, 16 barrels per capita. This is oil demand of oil demand. It's 15, 16 barrels per capita. The other 7 billion people on earth are barely using three barrels per capita. It's not a close call. Uh, and that there, there's going to be another 2 billion people coming on, onto earth uh, that will mostly go into that rest of world category. They're using a fraction of the energy that we do. And keep in mind, modern energy and its benefits, there's no, there's no debate over it. We are very lucky to be living in the United States or Western Europe or Canada or Japan. We have great lives. We're very lucky. And it has all been enabled by modern energy. The question is, how do you get that type of living standard to the rest of the world? Should it all come with fossil fuels? Of course not. We absolutely need new technologies. We need them to scale. We're going to need electric vehicles. We're going to need all the things that everyone talks about. But the idea, <laughs> that you're going to meet the needs of these other 7 billion people, soon to be nine, who use a fraction of the energy we do, only with the new stuff, when it is wholly untested at scale, when we know that critical minerals and mining have at least as many, if not more, geopolitical and other uncertainties, as does oil and fossil fuels. A good reason to substitute change is to diminish some of the geopolitical security around oil, but it might be just as bad, if not worse, with critical minerals. We know the environmental opposition to doing these things within Western Europe or US. We'd always rather pollute other countries than our own. Right? We know all that exists. So you're telling those other 7 billion people, good luck. Good luck with the new stuff. And by the way, make sure you get your critical minerals from your own country because we're not going to develop it here. Where is the economic and social justice in that? Where's the pragmatism in it? Where is it? So again, when I look at the outlook for oil demand, Take a country, excuse me, a continent like Africa, 52, 53 different countries. They're using one barrel per capita, one barrel per capita for 1.3 billion people. It's 4 million barrels a day of oil demand. If they were to simply get to three barrels per capita, this is that's simply the average of the current rest of the world. If they simply got to that very low average, three barrels per capita, you're talking 8 million barrels a day of oil demand growth. Now, China, went from 5 million barrels a day in 2002, 2003 to 13 million barrels a day of demand. I think it took them like 15 years to, 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 to grow by 8 million barrels a day. Will the continent in Africa grow that quickly? I don't know. Um, they have a lot of challenging government situations and so forth. Maybe it'll take them 25 years. And that, that in a nutshell is your debate on oil demand. It is maturity and declines in the OECD versus ramp in the rest of the world. But the fraction of modern energy being used in the rest of the world is so small that it is really hard to see why there is such a pervasive mindset 
that somehow the oil industry is a sunset industry. You don't have to like oil companies. None of this is a plea to like oil companies. It is to recognize the critical need for oil as a foundation to economic growth and living a modern lifestyle. And so the final slide I wanted to go through here today is really to reframe this energy transition discussion as one that is solving for a hierarchy of needs. I'd say for the climate ideologues out there, we've already seen an evolution from only caring about net zero by 2050 and Paris aligned targets to this language of an energy trilemma, which I think I've got it right is reliability, security, and uh, climate. Um, to me, it's not even a trilemma. It, it is a hierarchy of needs. I think Germany post Russia, Ukraine proved beyond any shadow of a doubt when modern energy is cut off for you, you will do whatever it takes to replace it. The Russian gas is cut off to Germany. They, for whatever reason, are shutting down their own nuclear plants. Whole nother video for that one. And what do they do? They turn to lignite coal, not any kind of coal, the worst kind of coal from an environmental perspective that you can burn. They couldn't live for five seconds with that energy. And I don't blame them because I know I can't hear uh, in the tri-state area of the East Coast. When we have power outages, which we do, we fortunately have a backup generator, a natural gas generator. Thank goodness I bought it. Uh, none of us can live without five minutes without energy. It is about energy availability for all. As I showed in the previous graph, there's 1 billion of us that are very lucky. There's another 7 billion that are trying to add to their luck and to be able to use more modern energy. So I've given the Germany example. I, I think examples of where energy transition need to be thought is like the distinction between China and India. So if you're China, and you currently import 10 to 12 million barrels a day of oil, mostly from OPEC plus type countries, there's no doubt you're going to want to do electric vehicles. So again, some of the new technologies, they in some respects get over-categorized as just being for climate. It is a geopolitical step in the right direction for China to have coal-fired EVs over OPEC plus fired ICE vehicles in a nutshell. And I think the question for India is, they're not going to want to repeat China's dependence on rest of world oil supply. So I'm sure India will make every effort to go as electric as they can, but there are practical limits to it. There's, there's no chance they're only going to be using electric vehicles in India 20, 30, 40 years from now when you look at the size of the population. It may not industrialize which is much, with as much heavy industry as is China. So their oil use is going to be different. It is a services economy. Uh, it is not quite built on the export type policies that China had. So it's going to be the nature of oil demand is going to be different. They're going to want new technology. Solar is going to make sense. There are other new technologies going to make sense. They're not going to want to simply import LNG, but they also have a lot of coal. You, you know, so how do you reframe energy transition country by country or region by region? Africa to me is where energy transition will be won or lost. They have a lot of oil. They have a lot of natural gas. They have a lot of critical minerals. They have a lot of smart people, and they have a lot of people who currently are living on very low income levels. There is a lot of opportunity for energy demand to grow there, but also to be met by domestic supply. And how does that add up? Not all those countries get along with each other. So how do they think about intra-regional crude oil, natural gas, critical minerals, supply demand balances? And I think for the US and Canada and for the Middle East, there's a huge opportunity to provide our crude oil, to provide our LNG, but to provide our technology, including a lot of the newer technologies to the rest of the world. 
Whereas the Middle East mostly has to offer crude oil and some natural gas to the rest of the world, in the United States and Canada, we have the opportunity to offer all of the above. And we should be offering all of the above. It's about taking steps to make our economy more efficient, to improve our multiplier of GDP growth to energy demand growth, and to use our excess crude oil, LNG, and new technologies, whether it's electric vehicles, batteries, hydrogen, carbon capture, all the new stuff. We have some of the best entrepreneurs. We have some of the best technology. We have some of the best universities. And to harness our energy long position to meeting the rest of the world's energy needs, we're not on track for that right now. Some in both Canada and the US have this view that climate is the only concern. It is a concern. There's no way it's the only concern. And if you recenter this energy transition discussion to one that puts at its forefront meeting the needs of these other seven to nine billion people while continuing to meet the needs of your own citizens, I think you'll find that at least with the US and Canada, we do have a chance to help meet the world's energy needs with all forms of energy going forward. So I'd like to end this video on a personal note. And one of the key things I've always tried to be, both at Superspiked and in my in at Veritin and my previous career at Goldman Sachs, is an analyst first and not be an advocate. Now, I probably have morphed, especially in my current role, to thinking about what does good corporate strategy mean? How do you be a company that outperforms? So that I guess some advocacy and what it would take for companies, whether it's returns or fortress balance sheet or low-cost uh, energy source development, you know, there's probably some advocacy in that of what it means to be a good company. In the same way, there's probably some advocacy in terms of what good energy policy might look like for the US and Canada versus what is often a bad energy policy. The part that I find most perplexing, and, and perhaps uh, this is too much social media for me, is this notion of being a permabull or a perma-bear, especially when you're looking at energy, especially when you think looking at something like crude oil or natural gas. We all know it's volatile. We all know it's cyclical. Yet you do see folks really in this camp of they're either perma-bulls or perma-bears. And it, it's something I've never really understood. Yes, you have to have a view. Uh, yes, you shouldn't be wishy-washy and just sort of always go where the wind blows. Oh, oil's down, so now I'm bearish. Oh, we're starting to turn, so I'm bullish. But the sort of uh, resistance, if not outright hostility, from these sort of two camps of folks who are distinctly sort of always bullish, permabulls, or that are always bearish, I, I do find it mystifying. I'll just say, I, you know, I hope I don't come across as a permabull ever, even this I am very positive on this industry not being a sunset industry. I think it's got a lot of good years ahead of it. And as I am very positive on the profitability outlook, it comes from a point, as best as I can, of trying to be an analyst first, uh, and then being very clear on what I'm advocating for. So uh, that's it. Thank you.